Last week, I shared with you that Mother's Day message here at North Place would probably be a little different than what you expected. It may not be to moms or even about moms, but it would probably be a message that would be in partnership with the prayers of every godly mother. Last week, we looked at the life of David and learned lessons about how not to direct a family. Uh, But this week, I want us to look at the life of Solomon. We're journeying in the message Uh, through the year, through the Old Testament, we're up to the life of Solomon. And let's kind of start at the end, Solomon's uh, writings in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's walked in disobedience to God and he's come to the end of his life. He's reaped the repercussions of living outside God's design for life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment and include every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. On my recent trip to Alaska, I discovered some interesting facts. Most of Alaska is off the road system, so uh, aviation is a huge industry there, especially these small bush planes that move from remote region to remote region. And, And I was shocked to find out that one in five Alaskans is actually a pilot. Bill Welch is a pastor that's pastor there for 30 years. He was our host for the conference that we were speaking in. and uh, His wife worked for one of these large aviation companies. And because of that, Bill kind of served as a chaplain for the company. And, and they sadly told us stories about how many of these planes had gone down in remote Alaska and, and how he had preached the funerals of people that he knew really well. Um, and, and up until that conversation, I'd been trying to get Haley to go on a bush plane with me to see the sights of Alaska and look at some grizzly bears. But thanks to Bill, after that conversation, that idea ended. It was over. I've flown commercially in the last several years over a million miles. And rarely do I get on a plane and not think about what if this doesn't make it to my destination. I mean, I've literally turned around and gone back and hugged my kids again. Because you think about it when you fly. It's kind of nerve-wracking to get in a, in a metal tube 30,000 feet in the air going 500 miles an hour, putting your life in the hands of people you don't even know. Um, I've done that, and, and you do that. And, and it doesn't happen often, but on an occasion, you'll hear the story about one of these things going down, and, and you wind up seeing this carnage and debris and wreckage, and the FAA investigators go digging through the debris. And what are they looking for? The black box. Because the black box always survives. And if the black box always makes it, then why is the whole plane not made out of whatever the black box is made out of? (laughs) The black box has information. It has the last conversation. It has has data that will help these investigators determine what led up to the crash. And more importantly, it will help them figure out how not to repeat those same mistakes so the same kind of crash doesn't happen again. The black box is the backstory, And as we've been studying through the story, especially over the last couple of weeks with the life of David and this week the life of Solomon, 
We've been looking at people's lives from the Old Testament. And basically what we're doing is we're investigating the carnage and the debris of their lives and of their relationships, trying to unearth the black boxes of their lives to learn what led up to the destruction of their families, what led up to the demise of their homes. And we're able to unearth the black boxes. We can see from their mistakes and hopefully implement some changes that keep us from repeating their mistakes. Solomon was David's son. He was the next king of the nation of Israel. You read about his story in the book of 1 Kings, but you probably learn more about the head and the heart of King Solomon by reading the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes could really be called Solomon's diary. And in his diary, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon basically says, here's my black box. Here's the story of my life. And he lays it out for us, hoping that we can learn from his mistakes, from his misled pursuits, and where it ultimately took him. Solomon is known as a king who possessed great wisdom. But with all of his wisdom, he was a greatly flawed man. Probably because he associated the purpose of life, ultimate purpose of life, with the pursuit of happiness. He was a pleasure seeker. And whatever it took to make himself happy, he felt like if he had an itch, he had to scratch it. If he had a desire, he had to fulfill it. And he ran after it with all of his heart because the ultimate goal of his life was happiness. And out of any biblical Old Testament character that probably identifies with the current American culture, it's probably Solomon. If you ask the average American what the purpose of life is, they're going to tell you, well, my goal in life, my purpose of life is to be happy. That's what I'm giving my time to. That's what I'm giving my attention to. That's how I'm spending my resources to experience happiness, to find pleasure and fulfillment. And that's how Solomon lived his life, scratching what itched, fulfilling what he desired. But he took the pleasure-seeking to the ultimate extreme. If you read through his his diary in the book of Ecclesiastes, you find out that he thought, you know, if I can pursue laughter, humor, uh, entertainment, maybe I can get enough of that and it'll make me happy, but it didn't. And so he tried the party lifestyle and and, uh, he pursued the drinking and the partying and all that comes along with that. And at the end, he said, it's vanity, it's meaningless, it's empty, it hasn't done what I wanted it to do. So he moved on to using his wealth to build great projects. He built houses for himself and created parks and vineyards and he took up all kinds of hobbies at the end of it all he said that really didn't make a difference either so he surrounded himself with servants of every kind I mean he had maids and butlers and the equivalent of of chauffeurs and massage therapists and personal shoppers but at the end of of expending his wealth for those kinds of things he says again it's meaningless it's vanity it brought my life no fulfillment but Solomon is probably best known for for pursuing happiness and pursuing joy by having multiple wives. Now, when I say multiple wives, I mean a lot. I mean, this is not a misprint, okay? Listen closely. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Not combines, concubines, okay? I could have told him, dude, I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but, but that's not going to work, you know? He surrounded himself with a thousand women, and each time he gets married, I guess he said to himself, maybe this one will make me happy. Eventually, his pursuit of wives and trying to find happiness in his multiple spouses led to a plane crash. You read about it in 1 Kings 11.1. 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women 
besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, notice it doesn't say Moabite, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Basically, women from every known nation of the world at that time. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, pay attention to that word, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God and the heart of David as, as the heart of David his father had been. He had all these wives, and specifically, God had said to him, Don't take wives from these nations because they will lead you astray. And Solomon, that statement, nevertheless, is the description of his life. God said this, here are the directions, here is the blueprint for a life of fulfillment in me. And yet you read, nevertheless, Solomon said, I know more about love, sex, and marriage than God does. Nevertheless, even though he designed it, he created it. He designed me, he created me. I'm going to do this my way. Nevertheless, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. So we discover that right away in Solomon's life, when you go back and unearth his black box, he rejected God's directions for marriage and things in his life started to unravel. Now, I think there's something innate in the male species to reject directions. I mean, whether you get a present for Christmas that has to be assembled or your kids get a gift for Christmas that has to be put together and you see that it comes with directions, who has time for directions? We can put this together without the directions. Haley and I bought an entertainment center. We were saving money. We bought one of those particle press board things that looked really good that had the veneer on the outside. It was cheap. And the store offered you to have somebody come into your home to put it together. And what they charged to put the thing together was half what the whole entertainment center cost. And I thought, I'm not spending any money like that. I can do this myself. So I get home and open up their 40-page manual of how to put this thing together. And after 15,000 screws, brackets, and whatever the names of all those other pieces are, and two weeks later, there's a half-assembled thing in my living room And my wife walks by and asks ridiculous questions that ultimately are questioning my manhood. That's what they were doing about why this thing isn't put together. And by the time it was all said and done, I was ready to take out a loan to hire somebody to put this thing together. And I don't think I'm alone in this room because when I say men don't like directions, we just kind of think we can figure it out on our own. I mean, we rarely start by looking at the directions. We think we can do this on our own. It doesn't matter how many pieces there are or how many screws there might be. I can do this. Now, there's nothing in my past that would make you think that I would be able to do this. But because I'm a man, I don't want to follow the directions. That's the reason when we're lost, we'll never admit to you we're lost. We keep driving until we find something familiar or we refuse to stop and ask for directions because we don't need directions. And sometimes because of bad experiences and the prodding of Haley, I will use the directions to put some things together. But 
most of the time I realize most of these steps in here are not even necessary. Who needs 1 through 45? 10 steps would have put this thing together just fine. I mean, it says to put 20 screws in this side. If I put one in each corner, that's going to hold it together and it will be done a whole lot quicker. So we skip steps. And then there's a lot of times when I'm looking through the directions, I start putting this thing together. And step 12, the image that I have created doesn't look like the image that is created in step 12. And I am certain that the designer, the producer, and the manufacturer has crafted these instructions wrong. Because if he had done it right, his step 12 would look like my step 12. And so I argue with the person that created all of this and just assume they got it wrong. See, that's what we do when it comes to love, sex, and marriage. We have these directions that God said, this is the way it's supposed to be over here. Here's how it works. I'm giving you these things, not because I'm trying to be a cosmic killjoy and rob you from life, but I knit you together. I, I embedded you with all that little rubric of DNA that you got. I know how you think. I know everything there is to know about you. And I know that if you live within these parameters that are not there to keep you from enjoying life, they are there to keep you from having, to help you have a fulfilled life. And so they're here because I love you. Here's the design. Here are my directions. This is the way I've created it. And we read that and say, nevertheless, you know, I... I think I could feel my way through this. I really feel this way. My heart says to do this and it'll be all right. I'll just deviate a little because doing what God said isn't probably going to make me as happy and fulfilled as I want to be. And life's about being happy, right? So we skip steps. We don't follow the directions at all. Or we think that the manufacturer, the creator of marriage and relationships, maybe he wrote the directions down wrong. And so Solomon does that when it comes to marriage. He gets to the point where he decides he knows better than God knows. And it creates him a lot of heartaches. And here's how it plays out. First, he marries women from other countries. Now, God's problem with this is not an ethical, it's not an ethnicity problem. His problem with this is an idolatry problem. Because his warning to him is if you marry these women, they're going to turn your heart towards their gods. And the the Moabite women that he married worshipped Shamash. And Shamash was a a god who demanded child sacrifices. And the god of Ashtoreth was the god of the Philistines and the Sidonians. And that god demanded temple prostitutes as a part of their worship. Which all of this obviously is very different than Solomon's faith and Solomon's gods. And the commentary on his life when you go back and open the black box is eventually it happened just like God said. Solomon didn't follow the directions. Nevertheless, he did what he wanted to do, led his heart astray and led towards destruction. And it works out this way so many times. Let me speak to those of you who are young or in a relationship with somebody who's not a believer or you're engaged to somebody who's not a believer. The scripture warns us about the dangers of being unequally yoked together with somebody that doesn't share our faith. I know you have intentions that are well, that you love them, and you believe that through your passion for God and your genuine relationship for God that they're going to wind up becoming a believer in Christ. They're going to see it in you. And I guess what you could call what you're doing is missionary dating. Um, And this is actually Mission Sunday, and you're willing to turn around pledge cards to get monthly support for this project you have going on in your relationship right now. And I know that you mean well, and I know that you love them, but I'm telling you, I think there are a lot of other people in this room who would be happy to give their testimony to you to this end, that it often doesn't work out that way. There are some exceptions to the rule, but don't build your life on an exception to the rule. 
So if you're dating someone who doesn't share your faith, you're putting yourself at a lot of risk because those couples a lot of times wind up getting married and they're operating on two different sets of blueprints. They're both building a home, but they're building a home on different blueprints. One blueprint says to handle money this way and raise kids this way. The other one says to handle money this way and raise kids the other way. And it creates all kinds of conflict. And God says, look, it's going to be easier for them to turn your heart away from me than for you to turn their heart towards me because humanity is bent to drift away from me. So Solomon rejects God's direction and he decides he knows better than God when it comes to marrying somebody who doesn't share his faith and it led his heart astray. But another place we see Solomon rejecting God's direction for marriage is by taking polygamy to a whole nother level. A thousand women, really? God defined marriage differently than that in the very beginning. In Genesis 2.24 it says, That is why a man, a man, leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife. Wife, not wives. Wife. This is God's design, His plan, and they become one flesh. The word united is a very strong word. If you understand the translation of that word, it, is, it, it literally means bonded together or glued together. And that very word does not make room for a, a third person. Not at all. I mean, this is one plus one equaling one. The two are joined together and they become one flesh. That's how God created it. That's how He defines marriage. But Solomon says, nevertheless... I'm going to do things differently. I want to be happy. My heart tells me this is what I should do, and that's what I'm going to do. And in his pursuit of happiness, he ignores the blueprint. Now, if you've read with us through the story, as we've journeyed through the Old Testament up to Solomon's life, or if you've read through the Old Testament at some other time in your life, you might be tempted to say, well, Pastor, it seems like God was pretty okay with this polygamy idea because you see everybody having multiple wives. And I tell you to pause. Go back to find out what God said marriage was supposed to be in the beginning. And then go back and unearth all of the black boxes of the people's lives who didn't follow that blueprint. And look at the devastation and the havoc that was wreaked in the lives of those people who didn't follow God's blueprint for marriage. Every time you find polygamy at work, even though it was happening on turns of pages throughout the Old Testament, you see things falling apart biblically, socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, and relationally because God's... Uh, God's directions, when they are violated, when those directions are not followed, problems ensue in every dimension of life. He said, this isn't the way I defined it. This is not the way I intended it to be. And so then you get to the New Testament and you have an even more clear and more explicit understanding of what God initially said about marriage, about one man and one woman being united as one. Solomon paid a huge price because he wanted to do it his way. God said, here are my directions. And Solomon said, I know, but I think this will work. And besides, I love her and her and her and her and her. (laughs) Now, maybe you think, okay, pastor, look, some sermons you preach, I get elbows in the side. Uh, my wife, my husband, and, or sometimes the Holy Spirit's just stepping all over me when you preach. But today, I think I'm pretty safe on this polygamy deal. It's Mother's Day. Uh, get us out of here. We got a long wait for lunch and the hot rolls that you've been talking about. We're safe, okay? Polygamy's not an issue in my life. Pray the benediction. Bless us. Send us out. 
Okay, I understand that. And maybe if I was doing a conference in Solomon's day on social issues, I would need to be speaking about God's design for marriage as it relates to polygamy. But let's ask ourselves the question contextually, what is the answer for us today in this particular situation in the context of what God's designs are, what God's directions are, what is happening around us today where we are coming up with our own blueprints that are different from God as it comes to relationships in the home and marriage in the family. And one of those would be cohabitation, or as young people call it, shacking up. As an example, couples that live together before they are married It's been on the increase since 1970. It's risen 700% couples that live together outside of marriage in the United States. And when I sit down a lot of times with younger couples as a pastor, I I, I talk to them, those that are cohabitating or living together, and I say, here's what the Word of God says, and this is why God says it, and these are the directions He asks you to follow. And when I talk to these couples, I'll be honest with you, I admire their spirit. A lot of them are very committed to each other, and this idea of living together is an effort to not repeat the mistakes of their parents. They want to be committed, lifelong relationship together, and our culture has told them that if you live together, you can work out the kinks and decide whether or not this is for you or not before you make the this covenant for the rest of your life and it makes sense on paper because they can live cheaper that way and they've got all of these reasons and rationales and the drivenness behind it a lot of times is a commitment to make marriage when they finally make that decision work and I appreciate that spirit but when you start looking at the evidence it reinforces again a God who says I know you I created you I put these parameters in your life because I, I knit the DNA of your life together and when you live outside the blueprint it'll bring harm to you it'll bring harm to the relationship scripture says in Proverbs fourteen twelve, there is a way that appears right but in the end it leads to death there's a way that feels right to us that seems to make the most sense it may be the most rational approach it may even be more sensible on paper there is a way that seems right to man but in the end it leads to death There may be a way that seems right to a couple, but living outside the blueprints of God, it leads to death of that relationship. Let me give you some research, not Christian or biblical research, it's secular, from the University of Wisconsin, reports that those who live together before getting married and then they marry have a 75% divorce rate. They found that 15 out of every 100 cohabitating couples that are living together right now and marry Only 15 out of 100 will be married 10 years from now. 85% of them will not be married in 10 years. And they conclude this isn't a good way, regardless of what the culture says, to prepare for marriage. It's secular research. And yet God said way back, this is what it looks like. And I'm telling you this not to keep you from enjoying life, but because I love you, I created you, I know what's best. The Bible tells us in numerous places about guarding the sacredness of marriage. One of them is in Hebrews 13 and 4. Honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. That one man, one woman becoming one is really a beautiful gift that God gives us as a husband and wife. But it's, not, it's got to be protected. It's got to be guarded. And if we treat it lightly, if we lose out on what God wants for us, if we violate His directions, we lose something that's valuable. And God says, because you are valuable to me, I set these parameters in your life. 
Solomon probably thought, well, you know what? The next one will make me happy. Or maybe the next one or the next one. But the irony is, every time he added a wife, he was getting further and further away from the blueprint. And when he's getting further and further away from the blueprint God had given for family and marriage, he was getting further and further away from what he was after in the first place. Fulfillment. Happiness. So you get to the end of his story. You know what Solomon says? I read it to you at the very beginning. You get to the end of Solomon's story, and this is what he said. I should have followed the directions. I should have done it God's way. It's hurt me. My decisions of doing it my way have hurt a lot of people. And now that I'm old and reaping the consequences of my decisions, and I look back on life, and he uses the word son. I mean, he's writing to young people, and he says, son, listen to me. Don't do what I did. Don't use my lifestyle as an excuse to follow in my steps. This is what I know. After all of my mistakes, trying to skip steps or not follow the directions, if I would have just followed the directions, if I feared the Lord and obeyed His commands. I get it. Look, I know. I understand that some of this is hard to talk about. It's awkward and tense for me to talk about from the pulpit, especially to you that if you're living in one of those cohabiting situations or you're a Christian in the room and you don't really pay a lot of attention or hold a lot of stock in what God says. And and I understand that. But I also get that this room throughout the day today will be full of a lot of people who have sat in my office trying to pick up the consequences of their life, the pieces of their life, and have said to me, Pastor, I wish somebody would have told me about the directions before I made this decision. I wish somebody would have loved me enough to tell me, read the directions. A secular researcher, Scott Stanley from the University of Denver, was kind of blaming the church for the condition of the family in our culture, for not doing a good enough job about talking about this stuff from the pulpit. And this is what he said. Pastors are afraid that if they preach on cohabitation, many people will get mad and hit the exits. But listen. If we really love everybody here and we're really a family of faith and this isn't something we're just faking and somewhere along the way we've got to have a real conversation. Somewhere along the way we can't just hide it. I think a pastor who refuses to talk to you about tough things doesn't really love you. He may love your approval and he may love you liking him, but he doesn't really love you. I, if I love you in a very compassionate and non-judgmental way, I have to say, here's what God says. This is the blueprint for joy and happiness in your life because all of us, even this pastor, need somebody in their life to point them back to the directions on occasion. Even if I don't want to hear it. There's a passage in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 33 and 6 that says this. But if the watchman sees war coming and does not blow the trumpet warning the people. And war comes and takes off, takes anyone off or takes them captive. I'll hold the watchman responsible for the bloodshed of any unwarned sinner. When I read that as a pastor, it, it convicts me. If the watchman is on the wall and he sees an enemy coming to the city and he says, you know what, I I don't want to sound the alarm. 
People don't like alarms. Nah, 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 nah. The last thing, the last thing they want is an alarm. Is preacher standing up, always sounding the alarm. But that person can be held responsible as the watchman. And God has given us directions for life, and He's giving us the directions for the family. And I know some people have have given the wrong spirit, and they preach with this attitude of hate and look down their noses with condescension. And that's not what I'm doing today. That's not the way Jesus acted today. He says, "I love you." And this is what the Father says. And if you'll walk in alignment with what the Father says, there's going to be greater peace and hope and joy and fulfillment in your life. These are the directions to follow. And we help each other along in the process. I want you to hang with me. Because there's another area where God's definition of marriage is under attack in our culture. And it's the the area of same-sex marriage and same-sex relationships. One by one, our national leaders are changing their opinions on the idea and the issue, a lot of it because of political pressure. But here's the deal. We don't own the copyright to marriage. Marriage was not the construct of human society. Marriage was the creation of God. He invented it. He created it. He set the parameters to it. He owns the copyright to it. And because we didn't create it and we don't own the copyright to it, we don't have the right to redefine it. He came up with it. It's his idea. He defined it right out of the gate in Genesis chapter 2. This is what marriage is. And when we try to do it in a way that makes us happy or fits more politically correct with our culture, we're avoiding the blueprints. 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 1 lists same-sex relationships and a list of a whole lot of other sins like adultery and gossip and a lot of every other thing. And this preacher is not going to skip all of those others to highlight one. But I need you to understand, sometimes we go with what we feel and what the political pressure is. Or we go this way or that way, even if it violates what God said. I had somebody really not familiar with church recently asked if it was hard for me to address these issues and that person was talking in a political context and was asking me if it was hard to address issues like same-sex marriage from the pulpit biblically uh, because of the political tense political climate of our day and I said yeah it's hard but not for why you think it's hard it's not hard to me because it's a political hot button because this issue is not a political issue to me it's a biblical issue I do everything that I can to avoid the nastiness of our nation's politics. I try hard not to be political, but I have committed my life to being biblical. And it's very clear that from the beginning of Scripture that that the marriage in God's definition and blueprint of marriage is pretty clear. It's not that hard to see. And it takes some very creative stretching of the Scriptures to try to take out that clarity and make it say something that it doesn't. Or it's not hard for me to talk about these things because of political reasons, but it's hard. And some people will say, maybe it's hard because when you say things like this, cohabitation or same-sex relationships, you're going to offend somebody. No, I don't avoid saying things because I'm afraid I'm going to offend somebody. Because every day when I get up and read the Word of God, it offends me. The Word of God will offend you. Last week, there were husbands and wives that caught me and were offended. They were offended because I talked about critical, nagging wives. And I had a husband that said, thank you, you finally said that. 
And I had men get mad at me because I talked about passive men that don't want to lead their families. And I had women that said, thank you for finally saying that. I mean, the Word of God offends us. And when you read the Word of God, He loves you enough to let His Holy Spirit get into your life and tell you your life is out of alignment with this book. I don't care how long you've served Him, He's going to bring you into alignment. And so the fact that what I'm saying about cohabitation or I'm saying about same-sex marriage is offensive to you. Look, I, I, I don't get engaged in political things. So if it's offensive to you, here's the deal. Look at me like the FedEx guy, okay? If I brought a package to your house and you opened it up and it was a rabid coon and you beat me up because you didn't like the package, look, I didn't, I didn't package the deal. I'm just delivering the message. I didn't come up with this. You want to know why it's really hard to talk about this stuff? Because of hate-filled people who carry the name of Christianity and are hypocritical Pharisees who treat people with same-sex attractions like they are animals and inhuman and don't deserve to be alive. That's why it's hard for me to talk about this. Like a year ago in May... The pastor from North Carolina that said every gay and lesbian in America ought to be rounded up, put behind an electric fence, and left there till they die off. People like that, statements like that, are what make it hard for me to talk about truth. Because when I try to talk about truth from a compassionate direction, because I value, if you have a same-sex attraction, I value you. It's God's creation, full of dignity and I think you're following a wrong blueprint if you act out on those attractions. And I tell you that, and I love you, but I don't play on the same team as that guy from North Carolina. And this church doesn't play on the same team as that guy from North Carolina. Jesus, he doesn't represent Jesus of the Bible. He doesn't represent the heart of God when he makes statements like that. Jesus spoke truth, but he did so in love. He did so with compassion. And his harshest words were refrained for pastors like that in North Carolina. His harshest words were for the religious elite that looked down their noses with condemnation instead of getting in the dirt with sinners and saying, you know what, this is wrong. This blueprint is going to bring destruction to your life. I love you. Let's work on this together. I got so much I want to say and so so little time to say it. If you've been on the receiving end of condemnation from some selfish, angry, prideful Christian like that North Carolina pastor, I apologize to you. But because I love you, I don't I don't want your life to be broken like Solomon's. Solomon said at the end of his life, fear God, respect Him, and walk in His commands. You know what? When, another reason it's kind of hard for me to talk about this kind of stuff is because people that talk the loudest about it politically usually don't show the world the best picture of what a godly family is. And so when we got our own issues within a heterosexual family, it's really hard to point our fingers at everybody else. 
when I'm putting stuff together and I can't follow the steps and my step 12 doesn't look like their step 12, you know what I do? I go look at the picture on the front of the box because that helps me see the way it's supposed to go. If we're going to keep pointing our culture to the picture of what God's blueprint is, if we're going to show them the blueprint, the directions, then we need to let our lives be the picture of what it looks like when you live by the blueprints. We don't have to be perfect. It doesn't mean we're going to be void of dysfunction, but it means we walk in grace. It doesn't mean that we're not broken. It just means we found brokenness for our grace. I think sometimes it's hard to address these things, but we have to out of love. I went to a dentist a couple weeks ago, and the hygienist said, Hey, Pastor, when's the last time you flossed? I said, when I was here last and you did it. <laughs> and, and she said, I knew that was a nice question to say, I can tell you not been flossing, you know. Oh, and those kind of things in the, you know, you give all these excuses and reasons and you get defensive. And, 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 and I did that early on, not just with that, but my life. I have a family history of heart disease and, and I burned the candle at both ends. And up until three years ago, I ate tried everything and never worked out and I had people pull me aside and say hey we want you to be our pastor for a long time your dad had his heart cut open at 32 and if you don't take care of yourself and they would and it would make me mad hey this is my life I mean I'm gonna I'm, I let me let me mind my own business you, you you stay in your business but what I realize now older looking back those people love me enough to say you're living outside God's design this is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you're going to preach about all this stuff then you need to take care of your temple too. What you put in your body. You may have kicked alcohol and the cigarettes and all of that stuff in your past but the way you eat can have just as much ramifications. And, and, and I, three years ago I hated that wisdom but I didn't like it when they were telling me at first. But I understood it was driven by love. At the end of his life Solomon said in he, Ecclesiastes 12 Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. He says, I thought the purpose of life was to make me happy. The purpose of life is to obey God. I thought the purpose of life was to satisfy my urges and follow my feelings. Oh, the purpose of life is to put my trust in Him and do what He asked me to do. I want to, before we walk out today, I want to I ask us to do something as a church. Will you stand with me? If you've been ignoring God's direction in one area of your marriage or family or another, the Bible would call us to repent. Some of you that are husbands who have been passive in your relationship and not spiritually leading your homes and sacrificially serving your wife and children, you need to repent. Some of the wives that have, we talked about last week, who have not been encouragers in their home and complaining and negative all the time, you need to repent. For that couple who who is cohabitating together outside of marriage, I know it's inconvenient and I know it may make more sense on paper, but... What does this book say? And listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to my heart. I'm not trying to judge you. I I love you. And I I want what's best for you. And listen to the Holy Spirit. If He's dealing with you as inconvenient as it may be, repent. 
you're struggling with the same-sex attraction, you've been acting out on that attraction, tell God today, Lord, I, I see this conflict inside of me and what your word says. I want you to forgive me. I want you to help me. I want you to put people in my life that can help me. I want you to show me who to reach out to. I want grace, not just to forgive me, but to change me. If your marriage or your family isn't being built on the Word, if you're not using His Word as the blueprint or of any area, then, then repent. Today is a family. On this Mother's Day 2013, God, today is the day this family chooses to serve the Lord, to follow the blueprint. You say, Pastor, are all of those bad examples in the Old Testament of all these families just given to show us what not to be? It's more than that. They're in there to show us how humanity is bent towards sin and in desperate need of a Savior. So whether it's a heterosexual involved in an affair or somebody in same-sex attraction or some person in here with a gossiping tongue or a slandering mouth, we're broken people. We need Jesus. This pastor needs Jesus today. This morning, I'm not going to have the prayer team come again. I'm just going to leave the altars worshipful and ask Bear to do the same. I know it's Mother's Day. I know the rolls are getting cold. But I want you to know I love you. I'm a watchman on the wall. And I've lived outside of the parameters of God's design enough to know it hurts. My dad and my family was destroyed and my dad is like Solomon on his deathbed. He died just a couple years ago. He said, Brian, don't follow my footsteps. Fear God and keep His commands. So Lord, I pray You'll bless them and keep them. You'll make Your face shine down upon them. You'll be gracious to them. You'll turn Your countenance their direction. And if their heart is humbled today and they desire to follow Your commands, would You bring their life into alignment with Your blueprints and bring true peace and fulfillment into their lives today. In Jesus' name. I'll wait. If you want to come and pray, the altars are open. Whether you need Christ or prayer for your family, I challenge you to make use of this space. God bless you.